0: since my retirement I put together a little Bible reading schedule and uh, Ryan suggested that I tell some other people about it which I'm happy to do and uh, there's lots of Bible reading schedules around and I'd encourage everyone to find one and use it if you're looking for one I'm happy to give you one but they're easy to find there's lots of them around the one that I've been working on gives you a little bit of Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament each day, along with some poetry, Psalms or Proverbs. And uh, if you were to read every day, you'd get through the Bible in a year. But it's set out so that you can follow it at your own pace. You can start it at any any time of the year, and uh, follow it along. And if you'd like to have a copy of it, I'd be happy to give you one. Um, I'm happy to encourage people to read the Word of God, and any tool that we can find that will help us to do that is useful. So find a Bible reading schedule and try to get into the practice of reading every day. I know it's been a blessing to me to do that, and uh, I encourage everyone to do it. We're in Philippians today, so turn to the book of Philippians, first chapter, and... Before we begin to read, I'm just going to pause and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight and to open your word. And we ask that as we look at it together, you would bless our thoughts together. We ask that you would give us a time of enrichment from your word. Give us clear understanding of what you have for us from your word today. We need your help as we do this and we ask for it in our Savior's name, amen. Passage assigned today is from verse 19 down to the end of the chapter, first chapter, 19 to 30. But I want to start by reading a couple, two verses for context. The first is verse 12. Dave brought this preceding passage to us last week. And I want to relate back to it. It's all one continuous flow really through this chapter. And so let's just read verse 12, where Paul writes this, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So off the bat, I want to think about what are these things that have happened to him? What is he referring to when he mentions the things that have happened to me? I think based on the context, we could understand this to be a reference to his, his imprisonment, his arrest probably some three years earlier in Jerusalem, his, um, his being held in custody in Caesarea for two long years, his trip to Rome by sea as a prisoner, shipwreck, time he spent in Malta, over the winter, the remaining trip to Rome, his time of imprisonment in Rome. All of this is what he has gone through over the years that precede the writing of the epistle. These have been tough years for Paul, and I'm sure the conditions took their toll on him. At this point, when he was writing this epistle, he's probably over 60 years old. It's likely Paul was beyond that age, and 60 is not young, but particularly in that day, 60 was beyond the life expectation of of most. And I'm sure that the problems that he had with his health, he writes about a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that is, but he obviously had some issues with his health that the Lord allowed. His age, the experiences that he had been through all had taken their toll on him. Conditions were very hard. In prison, conditions were hard. Life was hard. There was a a trial pending. And his future was very much uncertain. And I'm sure, sure all of this would have been a burden on Paul's heart and on his mind as he sits in prison, as he writes this epistle. I wanted you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And then verse 18 that says this what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. <clears throat> yes, and will rejoice. <clears throat> Paul is rejoicing. Despite his impending death, despite his current circumstances, despite all that has happened to him, he is rejoicing. He's rejoicing that Christ is preached. He is rejoicing in joy because others are emboldened to preach the gospel. His imprisonment has spurred others on to preach the gospel. And so he... Rejoices. I want to think a little bit about joy and suffering. Let's read the passage assigned to us today from verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I'm hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you and being confident of this i know that i shall remain and continue with you continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in christ jesus by my coming to you again only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come to you or am absent and now here is in me. Suffering and rejoicing. These are two themes that we see through the book of Philippians. Paul speaks a lot about rejoicing. He doesn't speak so much about suffering. We have it mentioned here at the end of the chapter. In verse 29, we have not mentioned here. It's mentioned once else, again. Again, it will come up in chapter three. But generally, he doesn't talk a lot about suffering. But we know that he is, in fact, in difficult circumstances from the context of the book, from some hints and clues that are spread throughout it. There are a lot of references in the book to his affliction, to chains, to death, to terror of adversaries, to conflict, sorrow upon sorrow. He came close to death, there was loss of things, there's fellowship of his sufferings, there's distress. These are words and terms that are used through the book that help us to understand that he was facing times of difficulty and not him only. But the Philippians too were going through a hard time. I think that as a Christian living in Ottawa today, I know very little about suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. I'm almost ashamed of how little I know. But this I do know that as I look through the pages of Scripture and as I look through the history that has unfolded since the Lord came, and even as I look around the world today, I know that many brothers and sisters in the Lord suffered greatly for their faith. They were persecuted. They faced all kinds of adversity. Many were put to death. Rick Eichel reminded us us about this on Sunday, didn't he? When he spoke to us from Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Let me reread some of the passage that he read. In Matthew chapter 10, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. He says, Now brothers, brother, brother will deliver brother to death and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. They will persecute you from city to city. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, he says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, daughter, against his mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Those verses describe the very real life and situation of First Testament, first century believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they describe the situation and the circumstances of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ from that time on through the ages of history. In many periods and in many places around the world, Christians suffer greatly. For their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even today, in our own day, there are places in the world where believers suffer greatly for the stand they have taken for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we know little about it. But I mentioned Paul doesn't dwell upon the suffering. Paul rather dwells upon the rejoicing. He rejoices. And I'm inspired by that. I'm impressed by that. You know, we all know people in the world today who, who when they're suffering, they want to make sure that everyone knows about it. There's a little expression, probably not politically correct, but it goes something like, if, if, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Maybe you've heard that. No, and we know people like that, that if they're unhappy and if things are bad for them and if they're suffering, they're going to make sure everybody around them knows about it and suffers with them. Everyone's going to feel the pain. But I'm sure you also know other people as I do who are suffering greatly and maintain a spirit of joy and rejoicing in the Lord. I can think of a dear friend of my wife's who this moment going through very difficult times. Has been for a number of years. But she is certainly one of the most cheerful people that I know. Anytime you speak to her, she's positive, she's upbeat. If I want to be encouraged, I would go to her to find encouragement, though I know she's going through very difficult times. Paul was like that. He rejoiced in times of suffering. He rejoiced the epistle is full of rejoicing 18 times over in this epistle more than in any other we we read this word rejoice or joy given to us over and over again three quick lessons I want to share with you on uh, on joy I want to divide this talk into two sessions two sections I'm going to talk first about joy and suffering well I've mostly done that but we'll just finish up on the subject of joy and suffering And then I want to talk a little bit about this great expression that we find in this passage for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That will be part two. Three lessons on joy and suffering. First of all, we can learn this. In in verse 18, we read, Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. I I think one of the things I learned from this passage that we are reminded of from this passage is this, that the absence of suffering is not a prerequisite for joy. The absence of suffering is not a prerequisite for joy. I think that we know that. Paul rejoiced, even though he was being poured out as a drink offering he says in chapter 2 and verse 17 yes and if i am being poured out even as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith i am glad and rejoice with you all he says for this reason for the same reason you will also be glad and rejoice with me the idea of being poured out as a drink offering is It conveys with it the idea that he is being expended. He is giving fully of himself. And that comes at a cost. But despite what he is going through, he is joyful in the Lord. And sometimes I need to shake myself a little bit and understand that the fact that there might be times when we suffer should not, ought not, to preclude us from rejoicing in the things that the Lord has given to us in all that we have in the Lord in the great future and the prospect that we have in Him. Absence of suffering is not a prerequisite for joy. Equally, we can say this, lesson number two, that the absence of sorrow is not a prerequisite for joy. We could put it this way joy is not defined as the absence of sorrow. We read this here in this chapter. We can get a good sense of that, that though there is sorrow, there are things that he is sorrowful about and that the believers there are sorrowful about, yet they retain their joy in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 10, Paul writes this way, He says, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. I think it's more easy, it's easier for us to understand this truth, this principle, when we think about a Christian funeral. If you've been to a funeral or a memorial service, a celebration of life of a Christian who's lived strongly for the Lord and has gone through some battle with disease and has gone to be with the Lord, at least in the instances that I know of, that I've been involved with, there is great sorrow, but there is also joy. And the two can come together, in fact, in a marvelous way. I think sometimes that joy can be deepest in times when there is sorrow. We tend to think of these as mutually exclusive, but that is not so. We can maintain joy in the Lord, even in times of sorrow. Lesson number three, Joy is associated with relationship rather than circumstance. We see this in the passage as well. Look at verse 26. He says, For your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. Paul looked forward, anticipated to the opportunity that might be afforded him. He didn't know, but he had hopes that he might be able to join the Philippians again, and that brought him joy. It was his connection to them, his relationship to them, his love for them and theirs for him. That's what brought him joy. It was the relationships that he had with people. In chapter four and verse 10, this comes out again. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though surely you did care, but you lacked opportunity. It is their care for him that brings him joy. Joy is not centered in the things that we possess, in the, in, the, in the bank account totals that we have, in the toys at the dock. Joy, rather, is in the relationships that we have with one another. This is what brings us joy. But I want to turn our attention now to just uh, think for a few minutes about this expression this wonderful verse 21 for to me to live is christ and to die is gain i think for to understand this verse we we should think a bit about the context let's look again at, at verse 19 for i know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I struggle a bit to understand this verse and what this means. And I think perhaps the challenge that I have, and maybe you might have as well, is really centered around two key words in here. One is the little word, this. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What is the this that he's referring to? What is it that he is anticipating will result in his deliverance? Well, some have suggested this might refer to the preaching that he is referring to in the immediate preceding verse, that Christ is preached and that this will bring about his deliverance. Or some might feel that this refers to his rejoicing. Maybe it's his rejoicing that's going to bring about his deliverance. I, I think that rather what this re, is referring to actually is what we read in verse 12. It is all the things that have happened to him that is going to bring about his deliverance. <clears throat> I say, Keith, what do you mean by that? Well, let's think about the second word in here that we might struggle with, and that's the word deliverance. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, he says. What, what is this deliverance that he's talking about? The word is, in some translations, actually salvation. And it's the same word that is used for salvation elsewhere. But we know Paul is not talking here about spiritual salvation. Uh, it isn't uh, dependent on things that have happened in the past or things that might unfold in the future. Paul's very clear on how salvation is attained. We just studied the book of Ephesians and Paul was very clear there. Or in the book of Romans, we get a very clear picture of what salvation is, not by works, not by things that we do. What is it that Paul is saying will work out for his deliverance? And what is this deliverance? Many believe that this deliverance is speaking of his being delivered physically from the trials and persecutions and imprisonment that he's going through. And that that might be the case. And if that's what you hold to be what he's referring to here, uh, I'm not going to suggest that it it is wrong. But I I would ask you to think about another option here, which I have appreciated from some commentaries that I read, particularly um, um, one by Dwight Pentecost I found very helpful in which he explained that what Paul is speaking about as deliverance here is brought out in the next few verses, where he talks about the fact that he wants to live for the Lord and be bold in his testimony for the Lord, and that in whatever comes that Christ would be magnified in his body. He's speaking about the day of Christ that is coming. He's speaking about the judgment seat of Christ and he wants to be brought to a place of health and proper standing before the Lord. And he sees that as deliverance. He doesn't want to stand before the Lord on some day in shame because he has failed to live for him and failed to stand for him. And all these things that have happened to him have resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. It's resulted in him going on strong in his ministry for the Lord. And he knows that's going to bring his deliverance in the end. If we look back in the chapter of chapter 1, we see a reference to, to this. We see that some hints about this. Chapter 1 and verse 10, he says that that you may approve the things which are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Paul is concerned that people live their lives with an eternal viewpoint. They live their lives for the Lord, understanding that one day they will stand before the Lord and give an account of themselves before the Lord. And they should live accordingly. This comes out again in chapter 2 and verse 16, where he says, Holding fast the word of life, he exhorts the Philippians to remain strong and to stand in the Lord. He is concerned for them, he is reaching out to them, he wants them to stand fast in the Lord. Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I may not have run in vain, or labored in vain. Paul's concern is that his ministry be effective. And he he wants those whom he has helped to disciple to live for the Lord. He wants his work to count for eternity for the Lord. And if he has not been effective in his ministry and his discipling, then his labor and his work in his vain. But he believes that these things will work out for his deliverance on that day, for his healthy standing on that day before the Lord. Paul says, for me to live as Christ. Paul was all in for the Lord. Sometimes I think that we have a bad perception, an inaccurate perception of the judgment seat of Christ and of what it is. Perhaps sometimes we think of it as a graduation ceremony or a commencement ceremony where we're going to walk up on the stage and we're going to be handed, you know, the scroll, the certificate, and pat it on the back and said, well done, and commence you and be directed into heaven. That isn't the picture I see of the judgment seat of Christ. I think there's more to it than that. Paul wants his life to be meaningful, a life of value and service for the Lord. He was all in for the Lord. Listen to Paul's words through the book of Philippians. In chapter 1 and verse 23, the verse we read, he said he wanted to be with Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 10, he says he wants to know Christ. In chapter 3 and verse 8, he says he wants to gain Christ. In chapter 3 and verse 9 he says he wants to be found in Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 20 says that he eagerly waits for Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 21, he anticipates his transformation to become like Christ. Look at chapter 3 and verse 7, read it. But these things, those but what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss. For Christ, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And he says this, to die is gain. I would suggest to you that it is difficult to see death as gain if all of our treasures are here on earth. The Lord reminds us in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he reminds us in the Gospel of Luke, he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things that he possesses. Paul was uncertain about his future. Would he be freed? Would he see the Philippian believers again? Through the passage that we've read, he, he seems to he seems to jump back and forth. He certainly hopes in some ways that he will see the Philippians again. He would like to be able to encourage them. But he also realizes that it's better to be with Christ. He's not sure what the outcome will be. And and this comes out again in in chapter 2, and verse 23. Uh, Therefore, I'd hope to send Timothy to you at once. And then he says, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come to you shortly. He's not sure, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what the outcome is gonna be. The future is uncertain. He is in prison, and he knows that the outcome might well be that he will be put to death. He knows that. He realizes that. And so he has this, this, this tearing in his heart, a desire to go on and serve the Lord and to live and to see the Philippians again, but also understanding that he would like to be with Christ. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul wanted, above all, to go out with his flags flying, To live for the Lord, to stand for the Lord, for me to live as Christ. We need to consider what that means for each of us. There are things that change our focus and our outlook in life. When one gets married, their focus changes. Before they were married, they did as they wished. They were free to come and go. They had certain objectives in their life. They think about what they want to do and where they want to go. But when they're married, all of a sudden, it's a different outlook. The focus changes. There's a radical change in their planning, in their future, in their thinking. There's someone else involved. Similarly, when you have children, things change. We don't just run out to the restaurant anytime you want. The focus of life changes. These are fundamental shifts in life. Paul had that shift one day on the Damascus Road. His life was changed. His focus was changed. What is our focus? What is the center of your life? Can you say like Paul, for me to live is Christ? I've heard several speakers challenge me with this simple thought, fill in the blank. For me to live is blank what is the focus of your life take your time to think about it and be honest what are your goals what are your motives what are your desires if our primary focus is something here on earth then dying will not be gain but if our life is centered on Christ and focused on him only then will we be able to acknowledge that dying is gain Christ needs to be the object and the fullness and the goal of our life. I just want to close with a couple of little personal thoughts, and I hope I'm not out of place to do this. Like Paul, we do not know what the future brings. Christ does not return. Who among us listening here today might not be with us one year from now? We don't know that. The Lord knows. As I read verses 22 and 23, I can't help but think about the last few days that I was able to spend with my own father a man who loved the Lord verse 22 says but if I live on in the flesh that will mean fruit from my labor yet what I shall choose I cannot tell for I'm hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ which is far better Paul's heart was torn between its desire to be with Christ and his concern for the care and the believers at Philippi. Should we feel guilty for, di- for desiring to stay on earth when we go through times of extreme sickness when the end is coming near? I think it's good for us to think about those things and not just to leave those discussions for someone's deathbed. Good to think about those kinds of things beforehand. Paul recognized that if he remained, there was service for him on earth, but there was some impetus then in his desire to stay. I can remember my father expressing in the last days of his life, when he knew the end was coming, that he was not ashamed of his wanting to stick around. He had struggled for five years with cancer, passed away about 26 years ago. He was grateful for the five extra years that he's got. He was grateful for, for seeing four more grandchildren. He believed that the desire in his heart to be able to stay was something that God put there. Paul struggled in the same way wanting to stick around and yet my father was not afraid of what was coming he accepted God's course for his life and as I reflect on those conversations I I I grew through the ministry of my father as he went through this experience and showed me and taught me He saw death not as an end, but as a beginning. It wasn't a goodbye, it was an introduction to a Savior. It was not deterioration or decay, it was transformation. Paul obviously thought a lot about the mortal and the temporal, and the immortal and the eternal. and he embraced the one, and he was not afraid to let go of the other. We can learn from Paul in that, and we can seek to honor God in the way that we live, and to recognize that to live needs to be a focus on Christ. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I pray the Lord would help us to, to see that and to embrace that and to live that each day in our life.